Hello, folks. Dr. Maurice Selby here, medical director, producer, and co-host of Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM and the Health in Harlem podcast. While we strive to bring you the most up-to-date, reliable, evidence-based information to help you live the healthiest life possible, this show does not substitute for an evaluation by a trained and licensed medical professional. It is highly recommended that any advice or recommendations on medications, treatments, nutrition, fitness, preventive services, etc. be implemented under the guidance and supervision of your primary medical provider or appropriate specialist. With that said, we hope that you enjoy and learn from our program, and please be sure to let us know how we can best serve you in future shows. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Maurice Selby. And my name is Giorgio Malouf. And you are listening to the one and only Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM New York and the Health in Harlem podcast featured on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. And ladies and gentlemen, we are excited to bring you another show. Uh, Unfortunately, this year just seems to be continue to be a, a, a year of loss, um, starting with Kobe Bryant. We've seen the rise of this pandemic with COVID, uh, the economic fallout. And we also saw the loss of Little Richard and also Chadwick Bozeman, And most recently, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so before we get into the program, I just want to take a moment of silence. And thank you for doing that uh, with us, ladies and gentlemen. Now, as much as it's been a year of loss, you know, I feel like it's also a year of renewal and and reflection in many ways. Um, We look at this this crisis that we're dealing with, um, with the pandemic, um, you know, forcing us to be with family and friends um, in closer proximity to those individuals and making new connections, even through electronic mediums, right? Looking at uh, Giorgio right now on the show. Um, so we've we've been fortunate in that regard, I would say, uh, despite all of the challenges that we're facing. And when we look at these losses of these icons in our society, I think they each teach us different things. And especially when we look at their stories, their lives, and even, even what happened with them um, in their passing, we definitely have a lot to learn. And We're going to focus on Chadwick Boseman tonight, ladies and gentlemen, because this one, and I'm actually very grateful that his family actually shared uh, what happened with him, because I think it can definitely help us all um, in terms of dealing with and uh, being aware and preventing colorectal cancer. That's the key. So, Giorgio, man, good to see you. hate to bring us in on kind of a somber note, but I think there's, like I said, a lot that we can actually build on um, when we talk about this disease and, uh, you know, really just looking at Chadwick Bozeman's life. I think this was sort of his last uh, story for us. And that's why his family uh, shared uh, this tragedy with us so that we can understand it and be aware. And as we said, uh, prevent it. Absolutely. And like you said, it it is a gift that they did share that because uh, colon cancer, if if caught earlier on, is treatable for the most part. And uh, so the take home here is that we want you to be aware, um, not to be upset about it, but uh, to be aware because it could actually save your life. And um, in an article featured in the Washington Post, Dr. Kimi uh, Ng, the director of the Young Onset Colorectal Cancer uh, Center at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston said, I've talked to many of my young patients and they've told me that they never even knew about colorectal cancer before they got diagnosed. 
I mean, I had a lot of questions that I had to get answered by you before we started recording this. Um, it isn't something that is being spread in mainstream media. And um, if it wasn't for the passing of Chadwick Boseman, uh, it wouldn't have been trending in any way in the same way that other cancers are, which is surprising because we were just looking at the statistics and depending on your uh, sex and and what part of the world you're in, uh, you're looking at either the second or the third mo- most common cancer that causes death in the world. So this is something that's claiming a lot of lives. And and now, like you were saying, uh, Doctor Selby, we're we're starting to um, we're starting to see that younger people are getting affected, and uh, so it's it's a cause for concern and or rather uh, a reason that we should be more aware so mo what is colon cancer and how is it different from colorectal cancer for instance so colorectal cancer and if we talk about just colon cancer specifically we're talking about the third most common cancer worldwide Uh, colorectal cancer the term itself is really talking about two distinct types of cancer so that's an important clarification there um, colorectal cancer encompasses cancers in the colon um, or your large intestine, and cancer in the rectum uh, encompasses rectal cancer. So this this term is a an umbrella term, if you will, um, talking about cancers in any part of the colon or the rectum. And as you said, it, it is a fact, ladies and gentlemen, right? In this world where we have all of these, this misinformation and false stuff out there, the fact is that the inc- there's increasing incidence in individuals under 50 years of age. In 2020, there will be an estimated greater than 104,000 new diagnoses of colon cancer in the United States. And a majority of these diagnoses will be in people um, 50 years of older. However, close to 18,000 will be diagnosing individuals younger than 50 years of age. And from the people who are diagnosed, how many people do you think, uh, or how many people are, are expected to, uh, pass from this? So for this year, when we talk about, uh, colorectal cancer is an estimated 53,000 people that are, are, um, expected to have their demise from this disease, including 3,600 men and uh, and women uh, younger than 50 years of age. And the actual number of of colorectal cancer deaths is difficult to quantify, right? It's um, more than 40% of deaths from rectal cancer are classified as colon cancer on death certificates. And and so just because of those classification issues, and that's why we said at the outset of the show, we're talking about two distinct types of cancer, you know, it's difficult to um, have spot on estimates for these deaths. But as we said, that um, this is something that is increasing, especially in younger individuals. And there was a study published in a journal of the American Medical Association that found that death rates among Adults age 20 to 54 uh, years of age increased to 4.3 per 100,000 in 2014 from 3.9 uh, per 100,000 in 2004. Um, and, you know, if there's any clear indicator of this, because I think it's right when we talk about these statistics, um, it's not personal. It is not something that we can tangibly identify. But when we look at a superstar, like Chadwick Boseman, an extremely talented actor, world-renowned for his roles, right, in films that we've loved and learned from. Uh, He is an example of what we're seeing, this this trend with these individuals, younger people being diagnosed uh, with this disease. Yeah. Yeah. And so we must thank Mr. Boseman and his family, right, for sharing this diagnosis with us and his story of his battle with this disease um, because this is it's only going to make us more aware uh, so that we can do the things that we that we can do. And that's what we're going to get into later on in the program. There are things we can do to avoid this. Now, Mo, it, I, I know that we were just describing the um, the statistics uh, behind mm-hmm. this this disease. And 
we said that there's a higher incidence amongst uh, younger people now that's that's uh, on an upward trend. Uh, I'm wondering if there are any other types of um, populations that are disproportionately getting affected by colon cancer. Um, so we, we know that one of the risk factors is being male. So uh, males just tend to have a higher uh, incidence and prevalence of uh, colon, colon cancer and colorectal cancer in general. Is there anything else? Does race or, or anything else uh, also seem to, to play a factor? Uh, is this mainly genetic? Is it socioeconomic? Um, what seems to be, what are, what are factors at play? So this disease does not discriminate. Um, it affects people of African descent at disproportionate rates with the rate of colorectal cancer being the highest in non-Hispanic blacks. From 2012 to 2016, colorect- colorectal cancer rates were approximately 20% higher in non-Hispanic blacks than non-Hispanic whites with even greater disparities. And we talk about the deaths that we're seeing. And the rates of diagnosis are, as we said, increasing um, and young people. And so are the deaths. So not only are the rates of diagnoses of new colon cancer cases increasing uh, in people under the year under 50 years of age, but also these individuals are dying. Um, and it partially it's because of uh, sort of later diagnosis. Right. Um, whereas in older individuals, they typically find or diagnose these cases earlier. Now, explanations for these disparities, there are many explanations. It's multifactorial, but the biggest reasons are risk factor prevalence, which we'll get into uh, the risk factors, and also lack of access to regular quality health care. And both of these are related to socioeconomic status. So if there's anything that can increase your risk, it is just being at a lower socioeconomic status puts you at risk in general just because of that lack of access to to quality medical care and also some of the environmental um, and even personal risk factors you might be uh, exposed to. I mean, and yeah, Mm -hmm. I was just going to say, and that doesn't discriminate either. I mean, uh, during this pandemic, uh, I've seen my income dramatically drop and the bills stay the same, you know, for the most part. And so it's been a, a very tight crunch. And with health insurance, uh, the, the health insurance that I had once I was off of my mom's uh, um, insurance plan that she was getting because she's a nurse at Maimonides. Um, so I turned 26 and I was on this uh, on my own insurance plan. I was paying mm-hmm. $270 a month and I had a deductible of like $8,000. So that means anytime I wanted to go to the doctor, I would still have to pay out of pocket regardless as if I didn't have health insurance. Uh, yeah. So it, it limited like my liability for something larger, but then I didn't go to my primary care physician since I had my new insurance. I haven't yeah. gone to get a new eye prescription. I haven't gone to, you know, any of these upkeep things that probably would lead to, to poorer outcomes later on. I just didn't have the money to do it. And then when it came to picking true food choices, uh, as much as I would love to have the more nutritious salad, uh, you know, mm-hmm. that in New York City might cost $14, $15, sometimes I have to compromise and get the slice of pizza. And over time, I'm sure that that puts a toll on your body. I mean, um, the, like you said, it is multifactorial and it affects different parts of your life that seem to be risk factors uh, for this disease. So it's a huge risk factor, a huge risk factor. People with the lowest socioeconomic status are 40 percent more likely to be diagnosed with colorectal cancer than those in the highest socioeconomic status. And close to half, right, 44 percent is related to the, the prevalence of risk factors associated with colorectal cancer. Um, and that includes um like you said, poor access to good, right, nutrition to- choices or having the ability to afford um, things that are are high in fiber, right? Uh, instant oatmeal versus whole oats that you're going to get mm. um, off, of the, off of the shelf, that, that can make a difference over the long term. So certainly, man, it's a big deal. And unfortunately, at this time, especially um, with uh, COVID and, and the economic fallout, it is increasingly challenging. Exactly. 
And so uh, we're talking about people not being able to get the kind of uh, care that they need. Um, is there anything else that, that seems to be uh, a health disparity that's associated with um, colon cancer? Well, when we, when we talk about these disparities as well, when we look at uh, the racial disparities, um, there also can be a genetic component as well, right? So your family history, your background, knowing your lineage can be helpful in determining your risk for developing this disease. Um, for instance, myself, right? I have a family history of colon cancer. My father passed away at 46 years of age. And so that is something that um, automatically, aside from me being a man, aside from me being a, a black man, mm -hmm. the fact that my father had colon cancer and passed away at such a young age uh, significantly increases my risk. And so that is how I must operate when I talk about um, or think about what needs to happen with regards to preventing this disease. And if there's anything anyone needs to take home today from the program, uh, really is that although this is a, a year of loss and we had this, this terrible news with the loss of Chadwick Bozeman, what he did and what his family did in, in informing us of this, as you said perfectly, Giorgio, is a gift, right? Because we are now armed with knowledge and we are empowered from that because this is one of the most detectable and treatable cancers. and the key is to aim for early detection and prevention, absolute prevention of this disease. And it starts with one, understanding this illness, knowing those risk factors, and then we can go about creating a lifestyle that promotes good digestive health and also how we can get access to the medical care that we need to further ensure that we are not victims of this disease. That's what it really all boils down to. Knowing what happened with your father and knowing the risk factors that you have, what does that change about the way that you operate? So what what kind of modifications do you plan to, to have for your lifestyle? Are there some things that you, you are going to modify or you hope to modify? Because, you know, we're human at the end of the day. But mm -hmm. I'm just wondering what, what kind of preventative steps are you? So, so one is just, right, just knowledge of what this is. If you've had a, a colon cancer diagnosis or even a death in your family, um, one, you have heightened awareness, which is, um, you know, with the loss, it's unfortunate, but having that knowledge uh, can be valuable uh, to yourself and also additional family members of yours, including your children, right? So that's one thing that I, I automatically gain from that. And that knowledge has allowed me to do things like, uh, and we're, we're going to get into, as we said, the risk factors, but changing my eating habits, also making sure that I am getting the appropriate screenings and also just really being aware of my body in terms of things that I might be experiencing, symptoms that I might be experiencing so that I can uh, really do my absolute best to avoid developing this disease. And again, going back to what we said before is really, it starts with just an understanding of what colorectal cancer is. And, and we talk about any cancer, we're talking about an abnormal growth of cells, right? Just an abnormal proliferation um, or growth of cells. And that's the basis to all cancers. And when we see this abnormal growth in the colon, aka the large intestine, or in the rectum, which is essentially the final six inches of the colon. Um, when we see abnormal growth in these areas, that can be a precipitant to colorectal cancer. Um, so any abnormal growth, any abnormal mass in that location throughout the colon or the rectum uh, is a potential malignant, what we call malignant growth, right? There are neoplastic growths and neo, um, Greek for new, plasticos, Greek for a, something that is growing or a form, you know, essentially this is a new growth. And when it gets to a certain point, when it starts to get through certain layers of the colon or the rectum, uh, then it becomes a cancer. And a cancer, right, uh, sort of the in Greek mythology is like a crab, essentially. And so the claws going out or the legs of the crab going out and spreading, that's essentially what cancer is in that it is a neoplastic growth or a new growth or mass that has 
begun to spread to other parts that it, it does not normally reside in. So what, what do we call these uh, groups of cells um, that appear as, as lesions in our colon? So essentially, these abnormal growths are in the colon or in the rectum, what we call polyps. Uh, the colon, aka the large intestine, is, is largely where we absorb water and electrolytes from the food that we eat. Uh, we have different segments. So there's the ascending colon, which is on the right side of the abdomen, which receives partially digested food from the small intestine. And it extends upward into the right side of the abdomen, where it connects to the transverse colon. And that crosses the body from right to left in the upper quadrants of the abdomen. And it combines with the uh, the descending colon. And the colon comes down the left side of the abdomen. And the last portion of the colon is what we call the sigmoid colon because of its, its S shape. And finally, that last, as we said, uh, six, inches, six inches of that sigmoid colon leads to the rectum. And then the anus in which we finally expel our poop. <laughs> um, but anywhere along that entire course of large intestine, uh, these little abnormal growths, these polyps can develop. And that could be a, a harbinger of a developing cancer. So what are the main types of polyps that we could see? And wh what do they look like in general, polyps? So they have different uh, sizes and different shapes. Polyps are essentially, as we said, small groups of tissue that grow on the inner surface of the intestines. So you could kind of just think of them as little bumps. I like to envision them as maybe like kind of like warts mm -hmm. um, that are appearing in just inside the lumen of the intestines. So in the inner portion of your intestines. And there's two main shapes. There's sessile, which sessile are basically flat uh, polyps. They lie flat against the inner lining of the colon. Pedunculated polyps are kind of mushroom-like growths. They have a stalk that attaches them to the inner lining of the colon. Maybe you could think of them as like little yeah, mushrooms or broccoli tree, <laughs> broccoli trees. I kind of think of them. Bro broccoli florets, uh, if you will. And these polyps have different cell types or they're composed of different cells. So adenomatous polyps or adenomas, 70% of all polyps are adenomas. And nearly all cancers that arise from polyps start off as adenomatous polyps. What? And they're usually very slow growing and they have a slow, very slow transition to cancerous growth. And this can take many, many years. Now, the good thing about these is that although they are, right, the majority of polyps that we see in the colon and they are the vast majority of, of polyps that might go on to become cancer, they can be found and removed before they become cancerous. So how do we remove them? And uh, while we're on the topic of the adenomatous, uh, the what what does the adenoma part of that word mean? Because we we've spoken about it before on this uh, on the show and on different shows rather, like when we were describing um, Cushing's uh, disease and mm -hmm. uh, the cyclical Cushing that one of our guests had. Um, she had an anterior pituitary adenoma. So what does that word mean? So an adenoma is essentially in any glandular structure or glandular glandular organ in our body, whenever we have an abnormal growth uh, of particular cells in those organs, um, they are adenomas. Um, so it's essentially just abnormal growths on a gland um, in your body. They can be on your pituitary gland. They can be on your adrenal glands, uh, just sitting on top of the kidneys. And they can also be, because you have many glands that help facilitate uh, those reabsorption uh, processes and digestive processes in your colon, we have a lot of glands. And so those glands can uh, have that abnormal growth and lead to development of an adenoma. Um, and they can be removed before they become cancerous, which we'll get into when we do talk about uh, screening with colonoscopies. Next, uh, you have hyperplastic polyps. These are very common as well. The good news about them is that they have a small uh, and low risk for evolving to cancer. 
You also have serrated polyps. And depending on the size and location of these polyps, they can become cancerous. Small serrated polyps in the lower portion of the colon are known as hyperplastic polyps, and they're very low for uh, development of cancer. Larger serrated polyps, which are often flat and located in the upper portion of the GI tract, um, they can be more difficult to detect, and they can also be precancerous. There's also inflammatory polyps. So these we see in a lot of individuals with inflammatory bowel disease, so Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. They are actually termed, quote unquote, pseudopolyps, um, as they are essentially a reaction to the chronic inflammation that's associated with those diseases. And they're often benign and often do not progress to cancer. And finally, you have villus adenomas, which are 15% of adenomas found during colon cancer screenings. And they're villus or tubulovillus adenomas. Now, these do have high malignant potential, meaning they have a high potential to become cancer. They are commonly sessile, so flatter, um, which makes it a little bit more difficult to identify them on uh, screening exams. And smaller adenomas may be removed during colonoscopy, while larger ones might require more invasive surgical removal. So that's, yeah, I mean, that's it. You know, a range of different polyps and those adenomatous polyps are the ones that are most problematic because they have a higher risk of turning into cancer. So Mo, do people usually only know that they have colon cancer once those polyps are found in a routine colonoscopy? Or do people present with certain signs and symptoms that lead them to believe that they, you know, they, sh they might suspect that they have colon cancer and go get screened for it? So as far as the signs and symptoms, you can experience signs and symptoms associated with colon cancer. As far as the polyps themselves, very frequently there are no symptoms unless they're very large, you know, causing some sort of obstruction um, in your system. You probably won't have any symptoms. You might have occasional uh, bleeding. Um, that bleeding might be so minuscule that you might not be able to even see it in your stool. It would be something that we would have to detect on uh, evaluation of your stool with certain chemical testing. But uh, additional signs and symptoms are abdominal pain or discomfort, um, especially if you're having that discomfort in the lower quadrants of the abdomen. You might experience weakness or fatigue, constipation, diarrhea, blood in the stool. So actually gross blood that you can see in your stool or mixed in with the stool or even in the toilet itself. Uh, also, any change in bowel habits essentially can be signs of colon cancer. Unexplained weight loss is also a big deal, right? So a person that's like, yeah, man, I eat like a horse and I'm not really exercising or changing my diet, but I'm losing all of this weight, you know, that can raise uh, the suspicion for something like colon cancer or some other cancer developing uh, in an individual. And another thing that we might find on routine blood work would be just anemia. Uh, even if it's not a profound anemia, and anemia is essentially just a low blood count. Um, which could explain, right, the tiredness and fatigue a person might experience. But um, anemia or a low blood count can also be a sign of colon cancer. Now, one thing that's very important, right, just like with COVID, I think we were all um, expecting something like an Ebola-like illness, right, um, or the original SARS uh, outbreak in 2002 where people looked like a hot mess, right? They looked very ill. Um, and you can make that diagnosis from across the room that, hey, that person has SARS, right? They look sick. They're having difficulty breathing. They're coughing everywhere and look look like they're going to die. Um, but with COVID, I think the more dangerous thing that we found is that there are many people walking around with no symptoms, right? No symptoms. And hence, they're able to spread this disease um, without even knowing it. Well, the same thing with colon cancer. Yeah. Yeah, the same. Well, yeah, exactly. 45% of people walking around with COVID and don't know it. And that's why we see such widespread. That's the issue with this disease is that it's spread because nobody knows that they have it. Well, the same thing with colon cancer, not in terms of spread, right? They're not spreading cancer. But the problem is that um, you don't have symptoms, especially when we talk about these precancerous growths, those adenomas. Um, very often, there are no symptoms associated with it. Everybody's living happy, healthy, productive lives. Meanwhile, this thing is growing. And by the, the time that you do begin to have symptoms, a lot of times indicative of more advanced disease. 
And so that's if there's any big problem with this, right, is that there are no warning signs. This is just like hypertension, which, you know, is sort of the silent killer. Um, what we call a silent killer is very the similar with colon cancer um, and that a lot of people don't have symptoms um, until they have pretty advanced disease. Well, the good news is that there are some risk factors that we do know about already through research. And if you have these risk factors, then you should be hypervigilant. So someone like Mo would probably get screened uh, at an earlier age and, and try and modify some of these lifestyle uh, factors that uh, are modifiable to prevent or reduce the risk uh, developing polyps. But let's go through them. So we have age. So once you're 50 years or older, the chances of you developing polyps increases significantly. Uh, secondly, let's let's go into diet because that's one of the, the biggest things uh, when it comes to this. Uh, people who have uh, a diet that is high in fat, low in fiber, with a lot of red meat consumption are, are going to be at a particularly high risk for developing uh, these polyps. Um, more on that, if, if you are obese, uh, that also will increase your risk for developing polyps. Uh, and if you aren't exercising or not exercising frequently, that'll also increase the risk. Um, more on that. So just like some food can cause more inflammation, tobacco use doesn't just cause inflammation in the lungs. It can also cause inflammation in other parts of your body because you're inhaling 4,000 chemicals and it's, uh, it's a probability game that at least one of them is going to react with your body in a way that causes inflammation and uh, that inflammation can lead to a lot of other things. And uh, it's not just in your lungs. We could see it also in your GI tract, uh, which is the case. And the reason why tobacco use is one of the uh, risk factors as well as alcohol. In addition to this, uh, while we're on the topic of in inflammation, people who have a history of inflammatory bowel disease are more likely to develop polyps. And uh, genetically, like we were talking about, People who have other types of history, like a family history of polyps or colon cancer, would uh, have a higher um, chance of developing polyps. And uh, there are also some rare genetic disorders that make one more prone to developing polyps. Uh, commonly, FAP or familial adenomatous uh, polyposis and uh, Lynch syndrome. And again, these are both very rare. Um, but if you are, if you do have a family history of that, uh, you should be hypervigilant and yeah, hypervigilance doesn't mean panic. It means, uh, let's get some additional screening done. And so let's get into what, what kinds of screenings we would be talking about. And the most common is going to be a screening with colonoscopy. Now you would be, uh, you would, you would have the recommendation to get a colonoscopy regardless of whether or not you have a risk factor for uh, polyps once you reach a certain age. And depending on the agency that we're talking about, that age can be um, anywhere from 40 to 50, basically. And uh, most of the recommendations uh, for screening, at least from the U.S. Preventative Service Task Force, um, is for uh, a colonoscopy uh, to begin uh, screening from the age of 50 and mm -hmm. that this uh, screening should continue until the age of 75. The, the yes. U.S. Preventative Str uh, Services Task Force um, doesn't think that uh, you should stop screening after 75, but rather that uh, between the ages of 76 and 85, that uh, your, your, it, it's going to be your decision whether or not to get screened by a colonoscopy. And um, that depends on your health at the moment and the results of, of prior screens. Um, exactly. And now if. And so this is important because I think one thing, right, people are probably going to be like, well, one <laughs> with colonoscopies. Um, I think a lot of us listening out there understand what we're talking about. Right. Literally, for those that don't understand what this procedure is. 
um, look at the word colon in it, right? Colon in colonoscopy. And that last part, scopy, like literally somebody is taking a camera and shoving it up your behind and uh, not shoving it, not shoving. It. I'm not going to use that. And if anything, <laughs> I'm going to say is that we should be we should be excited about this exam. It sounds terrible. It sounds uncomfortable. It sounds invasive, which it certainly is. But it's something that we should in modern times in the 21st century with all the technology that we enjoy and use every day, even to have this conversation. Right, Giorgio, as we uh, see each other and talk, which is awesome. Um, we should be excited about colonoscopies, the ability to oh, go why? and visual, visual <laughs> and visualize these polyps like we can see the problem. Right. This is something that when we talk about and one thing we need to get out there is that the good news is that we've seen uh, in recent decades a progressive decrease in colon cancer deaths. When we talk about all populations, all age groups, we've seen a reduction in deaths. Part of that is attributed to good or better screenings, right? Which colonoscopy is a very integral part of the screening process. And that is why we've seen some uh, benefits as far as decreasing death rates. Mo, have uh, you ever had and a- you said that only that's a small group, that small group, right? The young people that are dying, that's because we are not getting the screenings, um, which is not always indicated because I know some people are probably going to be like, oh, well, why is the cutoff 50 if we're seeing this increase in um, the number of individuals under 50 that are are having right increased uh, rates of diagnosis with colon cancer and even increased deaths? Well, that's why we really need to know these risk factors that we're talking about. And those recommendations do change, right, that 50 cutoff based on your history as well. Um, so, for instance, and I'm glad you were about to bring it up, right? Have I ever had a colonoscopy? No, I have not. But have the you given awesome one? thing? No, I have not given one. I've, uh, you uh, haven't been actually on either end of the scope. As, oh, right. No, <laughs> as, as, um, as a medical student, yes, I participated in a colonoscopy. So I did actually um, just one. And we can even talk about that. But one thing that I do have scheduled, I actually have a scheduled appointment with a gastroenterologist tomorrow, a telemedicine important uh, appointment. Um, to get my colonoscopy. I was actually supposed to have it back in April of this year, um, but because of COVID, that was postponed. And so here I am, you know, gearing up for it for it now. But and, and um, so- again, those recommendations change, right? For me as a 36-year-old man, right? I'm not 50, but I have a significant family history in a first-degree relative, my father, who passed away from colon cancer, that is why my screening should occur 10 years prior to when he was diagnosed. That's the recommendation um, that we see coming out of the United States Preventive Services Task Force. Um, is and, that and so you're, 10 years before that diagnosis, a person should be screened. So if it's a first degree family rel- member, especially, they should be um, considering having a colonoscopy 10 years before. So if it was 35 that a person was diagnosed, uh, a sibling, a parent, um, then you should be screened uh, at 25, right? 35 years of age, the diagnosis, then you might consider screening in your 20s. So what about if it was 55? Would you do it at 45 or uh, would you do earlier? So there are, and as you said, right, depending on the organization, so the United States Preventive uh, Services Task Force, which is a part of the Health and Human Services uh, administration in this country, that's their recommendation from the federal government, right? Um, when we look at certain organizations like the American College of Gastroenterology, they actually changed their recommendations in 2018 to say that um, they encourage screening starting at age 45. Um, so a five-year difference, but it is something that, um, one, if you have a primary care physician or if you see a gastroenterologist already, Maybe you can have a conversation at that age to determine your risk and whether it is something that you should undergo as far as that screening. And as you said, why we don't do it at at older ages? Well, the benefit in identifying polyps or precancerous lesions, right? The older we get, these individuals might not see a benefit uh, from that colonoscopy, meaning these, these adenomas can take so long to progress and grow that after a certain point, especially if you've been screened appropriately, 
um, up until those ages and you haven't had any, you know, worrisome findings, um, then you might not benefit really from that screening. Um, if anything, you might be, there might be more harm associated with it because a colonoscopy, right, comes with risks, just like any procedure. Um, risks of bleeding, bowel perforation, and other complications, right, even just from the sedation itself, it is not a totally benign procedure. And so we do want to exercise discretion in who is screened, right? And especially when we talk about an age, a person that probably isn't going to develop a cancer, you know, later in life, especially if they've had prior colonoscopies that um, were pretty benign, then it, it probably wouldn't be beneficial to screen those individuals. So another thing to be excited about, right, is uh, regarding colonoscopy. I know it's hard to garner that excitement, but uh, not only is it a diagnostic procedure, meaning, right, we can diagnose and see polyps, but also it's a therapeutic procedure, meaning you can be treated at the same time and treated as in removing those polyps. Um, so the polyps can be literally cut out. Um, either they are cut out with a uh, forceps or they can actually be sort of burned out. I know it sounds harsh, um, but it literally put like a little loop around it and sort of cauterize it or burn it off and then take it out. And it can also take those samples that are cut out and send them for additional testing, including uh, pathology evaluations to see if they are potentially cancerous what those uh, polyps are composed of and uh, the risk of actually developing uh, colon cancer from that. And so you can also get a lot of information about future, what you need as far as future colonoscopies, especially the number of polyps that are identified. Uh, if any, uh, that would determine how often you need to have additional screenings, whether it is every few years, uh, if there are a number of polyps that are identified uh, or if there are just very spare amount of polyps that might be five um, to even 10 years if there are absolutely no polyps and you had a pretty routine, clean examination. Um, and so that initial screening is going to determine what you need going forward based on number of polyps and also what was found if, you know, in further assessment of those polyps um, that might have been excised or taken out for evaluation. So it's a very important screening exam, um, and uh, you really have to make sure that you're, you know, you have things intact as far as your uh, follow up with a primary care physician that can help coordinate all of this, and also access to a gastroenterologist or a surgeon that's trained in colorectal uh, medicine to perform this exam for you. So, Mo, is this the only type of screening? Uh, that people will receive typically for suspected colon cancer? Or are there other methods that are also used? And I'm going to ask the same question for treatment. Yes. So there are other less invasive options for screening. So additional screening tools include guaiac-based fecal occult blood testing. So essentially what this is, are these are immunochemical tests so literally tests that are kind of like you can, I guess a, a rough example would just be like a litmus test, right? Mm -hmm. We can um, take stool samples and test them for blood, um, especially that microscopic blood that uh, we talked about earlier that you cannot see, you always see in your stool. Also, there are multi-targeted stool DNA testing services that are available. And this also uses immunochemical testing to detect altered DNA biomarkers in stool samples. And it actually has a higher sensitivity for detecting colorectal cancer than the fecal immunotesting with the guaiac test or that, that blood testing has a little bit higher sensitivity in detecting uh, possible colorectal cancer. Um, now, the one thing that we do need to be aware of is that there are a good amount of false positives um, with this type of testing, whether it is the fecal occult blood testing or the these DNA testing uh, that is done. And this could result in unnecessary procedures and treatments, right, that could also lead to harm potentially. So these tests do have limitations. 
Um, but especially in individuals with significant family history, um, those DNS te- those DNA tests can actually tell us a lot, and um, also therefore help in term in determining your need for screening, the type of screening um, that needs to take place, and and uh, ultimately uh, there has been benefit shown in that uh, with these tests um, potentially reducing uh, mortality that's associated with. Uh, deaths from colon cancer. And mainly that's because of early detection, right? Um, that's absolutely key. So the important thing is that the, or the take home message is that the risks of these screening exams must be interpreted with the understanding that early detection of colon cancer can be life-saving as starting treatment at stage one of a colon cancer diagnosis Right is associated with survival rates in the ninety percent range, whereas wow, um, if we identify this at later stages, right, so that number decreases to maybe sixty to eighty percent uh, if we make this diagnosis at stage three, right, meaning the cancer has spread a bit more, um, and even to the ten to twenty percent range um, with stage four colon cancer, right. And so if we go back to um, Chadwick Bozeman, who was diagnosed. At stage three, um, at that time, he only had a 60 to 80% chance of of beating the disease. And so we know that the earlier we identify this illness, the better the outcomes. And that is why the screening is so crucial. Essentially, right, how can we also really just be our own health advocates and take control um, in terms of avoiding this disease? And really what it, what it boils down to is that we have both modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors. And we talked about some of those risk factors, right? Uh, you know, non-modifiable things, you can't affect your age, you can't affect your lineage, right? Or your genetics. Um, you know, even if you want to take into account epigen- epigenetics and environmental influences, all of that stuff, no, you are born with a certain genome or right. or genetic predisposition to certain diseases. And so is, you can't change that. But there are some things that you can definitely do to reduce your risk of developing uh, these cancers. You want to take us through or, some of those? Yeah, or not do, right? Uh, so Exactly. So smoking and alcohol uh, consumption. I mean, we've spoken about this in pretty much every disease and disorder that we have covered on this show ever. Uh, it's never a good idea to, to, <laughs> to smoke. It's never a good idea to consume alcohol in excess. Um, you're going to see that in, this is a modifiable risk factor for pretty much everything across the board. And whenever we are, that was a money, everybody, I'm sorry, but she's, don't be, we gotta so go ride a bike soon, but we're almost done. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Let's go. All right, Bonnie. Okay, oh, baby. Man. We got She her. wants to say hello, everybody. Come and say hello. Say hi, everybody. Hey, Bonnie. Hi, Bonnie. Hi, Zodio. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> I have my uniform on. And this is the reason why I right, have to get that colonoscopy. It's not even about Maurice Donovan Selby anymore. It's about Imani. Um, and so that's why I'm going to man up and make that happen. Right? It's, it's about my daughter. But yeah, moving on. I mean, hey, man, yeah, I should, agree. You should be excited about it. No. Exactly. I am excited. If I can spend more time with Imani for the rest of my life and avoid colon cancer, then I'm, that's totally something that I'm going to do. You know? Amen. Amen and so, so, yeah, I agree, man. 1,000% like alcohol consumption um, and smoking in every conversation we've had about any other health topic, it has never really been shown to be beneficial. And getting the right kind of exercise in um, mm-hmm. has always been a plus for everything. It's always a plus to exercise, and it's always a negative to smoke. So we'll just put that out there. Exercise uh, frequently. Uh, a lot of aerobic exercise is going to help you across the board. Drink your water. And when it comes to diet, the things that you're putting into your body um, there are certain things that cause inflammation, and those are the things that that seem to also trigger issues uh, with colon cancer. So, uh, try and avoid things that irritate your stomach uh, or your your GI tract, not your stomach specifically. But mm-hmm. uh, so, and so those things are going to be the processed, highly processed foods, 
Mm-hmm. Right. So um, the stuff that you are sort of getting in those middle aisles, you know, you always think about the, the supermarket layout, like all of the fresh produce and healthier items being sort of on a periphery. All, a lot of that stuff in the center aisles, the highly processed uh, canned stuff, um, essentially where they're leaching and taking out all the nutrients and putting in a bunch of additives. Those things have been uh, shown to be more likely to contribute to the development of colon cancer. The uh, highly processed meats, uh, mm-hmm. especially things with a lot of like nitrosamines. And um, so those are the uh, like sausages and hot dogs and um, those things with a those additives can. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That can be that can uh, promote uh, cancer development in the, in the colorectal region. In addition to that, uh, dairy for people who are uh, lactose intolerant. So dairy can have protective effects mm-hmm. when we're talking about the consumption of uh, fermented dairy products like yogurt, um, you know, which we know is is probiotic and uh, can help your gut flora uh, to to be able to develop in the. It's kind of like a forest. You want to get the right kind of components of, of things to have that balance. So promoting lactobacilli and bifidus bacilli. Mm-hmm. So two types of uh, bacteria that uh, would be good for uh, that balance. And yes. But it, it may be linked. So probable increased risk of other cancers. Um So other cancers in the body, right, increased dairy consumption has been associated with uh, increased risk for other cancers, especially things like breast cancer, I believe even prostate cancer and endometrial cancers. Um, But there seems to be a a protective effect uh, when it comes to colorectal cancers. I think really how to interpret all of this is that, right, we're not telling you to go and like chug gallons of milk a day or to follow our... um, United States Department of Agriculture and consume three glasses of milk a day. That's actually probably too much in all reality. Um, but moderate consumption, right? Um, that 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 can definitely help you in preventing um, colorectal cancer. Now, one thing that sort of uh, comes up is, and we actually had this question from Reed Vero, of course, asking that next higher level question, of course. He's like, yeah, man, I'm lactose intolerant. Like, how does that affect my risk of developing cancer. But all in all, we need more research is really the the end of the question. We can't really say whether or not lactose intolerance increases or decreases risk of colon cancer. It's something that we still need to hash out. But the dairy consumption does seem to be beneficial for many reasons, including it has a number of components, so sphingolipids and vitamin D, calcium, all of these things that seem to uh, discourage growth of these abnormal cells and polyps. So dairy is a plus. Lactose intolerance, we don't know how much that really affects uh, one's potential of having colon cancer. And, and another thing that's fiber. huge mm-hmm, is, yeah, fiber, man. We need fiber. So diets high in fiber have been shown to prevent colon cancer in several uh, biological mechanisms have been proposed. So it could either be by the dilution of fecal carcinogens or the reduction in the transit time of digestive material, or it could be that the bacterial fermentation of fiber to short chain fatty acids that have anti-carcinogenic properties. So any of these three mechanisms uh, might be the way in which uh, high fiber diets are able to prevent colon cancer. And since we're talking about fibers, I think it's important that we define what fibers are. So fiber is a carbohydrate polymer that uh, escapes digestion and absorption in the upper GI tract. And the types of fiber differ in the inclusion or uh, lack of synthetic or isolated compounds, uh, which are basically things that are not naturally part of the food that we eat. And there is a, a requirement of physiological health effects. So whole grains seem to work best. Uh, the evidence uh, for fruits, vege- vegetables, and uh, legumes aren't as strong. In 2011, the World Cancer Research Fund and American Institute of Cancer Research continuously updated 
Yeah, they have a report that's continuous. It's a continuous update report on colorectal cancer that concluded that there was convincing evidence that fiber consumption uh, was protective against the risk of colorectal cancer. So eat your whole grains, which, um, you know, whole grains. So if you look on your nutrition label, you want to see whole something. And it should say with within the first few ingredients, right? The, the ingredients that are at the forefront of those ingredients labels are things that are in high proportion in that food. So if you see whole grain, if it starts with whole grain or is within the first few ingredients, you know, it has a, uh, a good amount of whole grains in it. And essentially whole grains, grains that contain the bran, the sperm and the endosperm. So it's the entire grain as opposed to parts uh, of the grain, particularly the endosperm that we see in, in grains that are not whole grains. Um, and this is where we see the maximum benefit when it comes to fiber intake is that whole grains seem to work best in preventing colon cancer. Now, we're not saying don't eat fruits and vegetables, especially fresh fruits and vegetables, but it's just that the benefits are not as clearly delineated in the in the literature um, in comparison to whole grains. Uh, so eat that oatmeal, man, like straight up whole grain, you know, whole oats, um, steel cut oats. You can also go to barley, amaranth. Um, there's so many options. Quinoa, um, all of these whole grains that you can incorporate into your diet in various ways, um, which is, you know, which will be immensely beneficial. So we don't want to leave people hanging by by only talking about uh, the things that are non-modifiable. These are uh, things that you have under your control. You, you're able to uh, change your diet. You're able to uh, watch your habits so that you develop healthier habits like exercising and uh, keeping your stress down and sleeping and drinking water uh, and eating fiber and, uh, you know, putting good things into your body. And you could also avoid things like smoking and uh, consuming alcohol, uh, especially in excess. Um, and these things will have additive effects on your body. You'll see the the benefits from modifying your lifestyle to develop a, a healthier lifestyle. That's why screening is so important because you have the ability to uh, to control your uh, progression in a certain to a certain degree. And uh, I think that's the biggest takeaway here that there are things that are, are in your control and the best thing to do is to figure out um, what your risk is and screen for it and be able to modify those things that are in your control. Yes, absolutely, man. I'm, I'm with you 1000%. I, I, I actually don't even like that, those terms in a way of non-modifiable risk factors, because although I agree with you, you can't change those things. We can't change our age. Um, although we can do all the plastic surgery in the world and feel younger and all that stuff, right? We can't change our genetics or our genetic predisposition to different diseases, but we can know that history and we can have the knowledge to act on those things and get those appropriate screening examinations. And so in a way we have total control, giving us our, our, ourselves the best chance possible of uh, minimizing our risk of developing colon cancer, um, especially in this age of uh, our technology and especially with what we already know about this disease, we have a lot of, of tools at our disposal that can help us really prevent this disease in its entirety. Or even if we come down with it, right, we identify it at an early enough stage where we can have the best outcomes as far as treatment. And so with that said, ladies and gentlemen, um, we just want to thank you for tuning in. And we are also going to thank you in advance for sharing whatever you've learned on tonight's program with anyone that will listen. And also, we do have to do a plug here, right? I don't think we ask for very much because uh, you will never hear an ad on Health in Harlem. We promise not to do that to you um, or sell you any items or any cures, quote unquote, but we just want to arm you with information. But one thing that we also ask is that you uh, follow us on Podbean. You can also check us out on our Facebook page. 
Just type in health in Harlem in the search box. We'll pop right up and you can uh, check us out there and follow us as well. And finally, we just uh, want to thank our colleagues. Um, so Reed, Ashley, Anastasia, Zach Worley, Alec, Ben Suferi. Um, we have such a large team. DJ, Michael Holmes. And uh, we just want to uh, send a shout out to them. They are part of the Health in Harlem team. And, you know, we can't do anything without their support and uh, contribution to the show. Also, we want to thank Angela Harden and Tina Dixon and the rest of the WHCR family. And as we say every week, ladies and gentlemen, this show is dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas. Harlem, take care. Take care of yourselves. Yes. Later, Giorgio. Thank you.